Hey everybody, it's Greg Gutfeld. I am super excited about my next guest. He's a biologist and evolutionary theorist, Dr. Brett Weinstein. He's a professor in exile from Evergreen uh, because he uh, offended the woke. But that's a long time ago. I'm more excited about his podcast he does with his wife, Heather. Heather Hying. I hope I pronounced her name right. I watch every podcast and it is probably, I would put it up there in the top three or maybe even number one as a, the most entertaining, informative podcast that's out there right now. Um, congratulations on that, Professor. Well, thanks so much, and thanks for having me. My pleasure. You know, so I want to ask you this because before I get into the nitty-gritty, in your life as a professor, how many students do you think you taught? You know, I've wondered about that. It would be probably – 500, something like that. So now you have this podcast, which I would, I don't know, you, when I'm li- when I'm looking at it, maybe it has like 40,000. I'm sure it gets over 100,000 on certain times. So you're reaching so, you're just reading, reaching a vast audience. And I can't help but think that whatever you're doing is pointing the pointing towards the future of education. Am I far off? Um, no, I think you're, you're, you're looking at something that's, that's correct. There's definitely a vast hunger for authentic, uh, interaction and discussion. And there's also, I think, an awareness that the model by which we deliver education is economically preposterous and Mm -hmm. that, uh, tuition is very high for no particularly good reason and that the people that you encounter by paying that tuition may not be the best people uh, to listen to. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, I think people are are discovering that they can source education more or less a la carte on the net. All right. So I have to say, I mean, you're, the reason why, okay, if, you, if my viewers or listeners haven't heard of it, the podcast, it's called the Dark Horse Podcast. And essentially – uh, the professor and his wife, who's also a professor, they just uh, they they it's a kind of a combination of knowledge, wisdom, and humor, and they they talk about everything from from biology to politics, and they're coming from, I mean, a history of progressivism, uh, of being you know uh, proud liberals of Occupy Wall Street, and they're but they're but they're sane. And it's and you're also the questions that you get from your audience are also like they're not stupid questions. It it really is like the model for a course, which is um, I I mean, does that make sense? I guess I guess I'm just complimenting you. (laughs) Makes it it makes a tremendous amount of sense. And the thing that might be hard to to intuit is that when Heather and I taught at Evergreen, Evergreen was a very remarkable place, and obviously it, it went haywire. Uh, in a very spectacular fashion. But Mm -hmm. part of the reason was that we had tremendous freedom as professors to figure out how we wanted to teach and what we wanted to teach. And Mm -hmm. so some of what's on the podcast is really uh, a mode that we developed in our community at Evergreen and are now adapting to this much larger audience. Mm -hmm. It's really natural. It reminds me of, uh, you know, when I was a kid growing up, it's like old school afternoon variety tv but you're you guys are natural at it and you've been working together and married obviously so there's a obviously no issues with chemistry but it's it's uh it's clever 
and it's it's so much fun. For example, I'm going to talk. I I I well I, before I move on. I keep talking about this in terms of Peloton. You're you're aware of what Peloton is, right? It's the it's the exercise bike. Do you know what that is? Uh, I know what a Peloton is, but I don't think I know about this exercise bike. It's okay. So what it is is you buy the bike, you get instructors that are beamed into your uh, screen at home, and what they've done is they've combined exercise with charismatic instructors. It's it's like you and once you get a bike, you are addicted to it. You lose weight. It's fantastic. You show up every day. I do it every morning, and I keep thinking that that is the model for the future of education. And when I'm looking at your podcast, what you're doing is you're what Peloton did to the gym. You perhaps are creating a model for the brick and mortar schools. It's like you don't have to go to the gym anymore, and you don't have to show up in a class anymore if you've got the right instructors. And the right venue and the right equipment, I guess, is what I'm babbling about. I don't know. Well, I'm still a fan of riding my bicycle outside, but um, nonetheless, I get what you're saying, and I agree. There's something about refactoring the educational model so that it fits your life and so that uh, more of your time is spent thinking about the sorts of things that are productive and interesting yeah. and less of it is wasted on busy work. Yeah, so true. And um, one of the topics you were, I was listening to you, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago and you were talking about dreams and I, I am, uh, I, I am obsessed with dreams. I find it like it's, it's a funny topic because nobody likes to hear other people's dreams, although they like to tell people about their dreams. Because if you, whenever you get in a conversation with somebody and they start yakking about their dreams, it's like I ha- I don't care. But you come to work and you had this insane work dream and you have to tell everybody. And you were talking about your th- a theory on why I think somebody the question had somebody had asked you are is there an evolutionary purpose uh, for dreams and you you kind of posited this idea of it almost like being a dry run uh, for real life. And it made me think about the fact that when I let my driver's license expire, I had dreams every week of driving without my driver's license and getting into certain situations with police officers. And I had to figure out my way out. Every This dream played over and over and over again. And I couldn't figure out why until you you kind of explained it. And I, go ahead if you can explain it because I find it fascinating. Sure. Let me just say that the study of dreams has been hampered by an evolutionarily preposterous take that has lasted far too long inside of the discipline of psychology where people have imagined that dreams might be random firings of the brain, you know, little snippets from here and there that show up for no reason, which makes no sense. The mm-hmm. brain is a uh, tremendously expensive organ to run just energetically and leaving it completely offline would be cheaper. (laughs) Therefore that which it does while it could be offline uh, at expense must be paying its way. So the, the hypothesis that I was talking about has to do with scenario building Mm -hmm. and the idea that, you know, our, our brains are, built to take in information from the world and process it in real time. But Mm -hmm. because we are diurnal creatures and because our eyes function well when there's a lot of light and not so well when it's dark, we have all of this time with this very fancy computer on our shoulders that doesn't have anything productive to do with respect to taking in new information. And Mm -hmm. so the, the mind 
runs through possibilities that will be encountered and tries them out so that they are not um, they are not new when you first encounter them. So your your example about uh, the cop pulling you over is a, a an excellent example of something you might encounter. And I can tell you from experience. <laughs> If, if you uh, roll down the window angry because you haven't thought through the incentives of the officer, you're very likely to get a ticket. Mm-hmm. And if you can fast forward your way through that anger, which you might learn in a dream, mm-hmm. you roll down the window and say, yes, officer, how can I help you? You're much more likely to get a warning. Yeah. So there's a lot, of, a lot of benefit to be had for a person whose mind productively uses that downtime to, to try things out. It's so it it's so interesting because and then when I got my when I finally decided to go get my driver's license renewed because in New York if you let it expire you got to you got to take the actual driver's test again which is just horrible uh, and and uh, and then when I did it the dreams are gone all of the panic dreams about like uh, sometimes it would involve like a, a relative that's sick and I have to get her to the hospital but I can't because I don't have a driver's license all that just went away. It was amazing. It was as though I was – the brain was waiting for me to solve this problem before it was going to let go of it. <laughs> you know, it was, doing its, it was doing its job, basically harassing me into finally going in and getting, and getting my driver's license. You know? Oh, I think this is, this is right on target. And uh, you, you said up front that nobody likes to hear other people's dreams. I do, and I used to actually ask my students to – to tell the class about the dreams they had. And one of the things that I discovered in these exercises was that our our dreams do not look alike. Mm -hmm. So my dreams, for example, are always first person. I'm always looking through my own eyes. Mm. But that is not universal. There are lots of people who have dreams where they sort of look down on a scene in which they are present. Sometimes people have dreams in which they are not even present, which Mm -hmm. I find amazing. But uh, to your point about your... Uh, dreams about your license going away as soon as the problem was no longer a threat. I had this exact experience with um, the fear that I would show up to a final exam in a difficult course without having been present for all of the instruction. Oh, God, I Um, get that one. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I still get that. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. I was was a a sketchy student. I was, uh, you know, some classes I did very well, but uh, I always struggled with other ones. And at the point I graduated, that literally stopped. It went from a regular occurrence to zero. Mm-hmm. I haven't had that dream since, which does uh, reflect exactly the hypothesis in question, which is at the point this is no longer a risk. There's no point in wasting your mental energy on it. Yeah, there was that. It's it's that reoccurring dream that you found out you had a class at the last minute, or. You're at you're in college and you don't know where the cl- the auditorium is. I have these, and I'm 55. I will still get the. I'm not sure where the auditorium is, and it's always. I went to Cal, so it's like I'm running around Berkeley, and I don't know where this where it is, and I'm like, and uh, uh, and I still have that. People have work dreams, like at Fox, like they're going to be late for a show, or and uh, but this is it's it's very strange to have that. Now you also. Oh, that was funny. My um, my producer when we were walking over here was she used to own bars in Hell's Kitchen, and she uh, her dream was running out of ice. 
You know, that's I mean, so it affects, it's always about something that has something to do with your responsibility or what what's expected of you. And it, she was I mean, it was like she actually had these disturbing dreams that she didn't have enough ice at the bar, which is a good a good concern to dream about if you're a drinker, I think. Well, I don't know. I mean, running out of ice, that's kind of hot. <laughs> Terrible. See, it's it puns like that that make your podcast so endearing. But you also brought up something. Which, okay, so about, I don't know, like four or five years ago, or maybe not that long, I was trying to get an expert on lucid dreaming because I used, I used to lucid dream maybe 25, well, 30 years ago. I was in college 35 years ago, and I was having hypnagogic nightmares. So I'd be like uh, paralyzed, and I would have this kind of like animalistic, almost gargoyle-like creature either at the foot of my bed or really close to my face, and it was – Terrifying. I would get these twice a month. I used to get them as kids, as a kid. And then I talked to some dude who was a therapist. I don't know how this happened, but he 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 basically gave me some tips on how to address it before you go to bed. And it was basically some kind of self talk and basically trying to wake yourself up in a in this state by telling yourself it's a dream. And and it's like before you go to bed, you tell yourself. It's only going to be a dream, and then when it happens, and and so miraculously, like over, it happened, and I was able, I was able to wake up while dreaming and um, vanquish this uh, this beast. But what happened? The consequence, well, the consequence or benefit of that is now I could do that in almost every dream, and which creates like these incredibly strange adventures. And um, but anyway, to the point is, I tried to look for a lucid dream expert. I couldn't find a single person. I found there was a guy who wrote a book on dreams, but he wouldn't come on the show. I think because it was Fox. <laughs> that was his nightmare. <laughs> but you mentioned it, and I thought that was like I was like, and I was curious what you thought. What, how, what is going on there that allowed me to do that? Also, the fact that it is now fairly difficult for me to try it. It seems like it's a muscle that you have to practice and 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 you can lose it over time. Does that make any sense? <laughs> yeah. In fact, I've had the same experience. I used to lucid dream. I, I taught myself to do it uh, with a technique I picked up from the Stanford Sleep Research Center, mm -hmm. and I quite enjoyed it, but it was also quite exhausting. <laughs> and so I stopped doing it at some point. Yes. Um, but, you know, I learned a bunch from it. I learned that although I control my own actions in the dreams, mm -hmm. I don't control other people's actions in the dreams. Or if I open a door in a dream, I don't control what's beyond it. Right. Um, you know, I could do things. Oh, this is a funny one. I, I'll probably regret saying this out loud, but uh, I, uh, I learned that I could fly, mm -hmm. but I never figured out how to do it without flapping. And <laughs> So it was a it was a tough job staying in the air, and it usually ended badly. I would crash land and wake up. Um, but anyway, yes. Yeah, so you ask why you're able to do this, mm -hmm. and I think the the reason is is this: your conscious mind is involved in your dreams. You are mm -hmm. conscious within a dream, but you're not conscious of being conscious in general. Mm -hmm. And at the point that you lucid dream, you become your waking consciousness mm -hmm. is involved in your dream, which tends to be very jarring and wake you up. So the technique involves figuring out how to stay asleep at the point that you suddenly are, uh, are aware. But what I would argue is the reason 
that you dream is because you do productive work in that state. In general, your waking consciousness does not need to be directly aware of what took place. And in fact, maybe it's not even positive for you to be aware of it, which is why we don't remember our dreams. But every so often, that's not the case. So I will have the experience every so often of I will wake up from a dream naturally, you know, not, not with the alarm clock, but I'll wake up from a dream and I have the sense that my unconscious sleeping mind is handing the conclusion of the dream off to my waking mind so that I will have it available. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it could be, oh, I don't trust this person the way I thought I did or, you know, look out for this hazard that I hadn't been expecting, but it's, it's a handoff. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm getting at is the relationship between your sleeping mind and your waking mind has to be flexible in order for the many things that dreams do to function to your benefit. Mm -hmm. And so what you're effectively doing is you're hacking that border Mm -hmm. and you're bringing your conscious mind across it so that it can be present in your dream state. And there are lots of good reasons to do that, but your ability to do it has to do with the fact that the gate is not absolute so that you have Mm -hmm. um, room to adjust it. And in that kind of like when when I look at it that way, there's and you were talking earlier about things that you can control and not control. What I always noticed with the the lucid dreaming is that there is the part that you can't control will sabotage certain things that you want to do. <laughs> so, like if you are walking down the street in a dream sequence, you're walking down the street and there is a beautiful person that you wish to be romantic with. That person, as you get closer, can turn into something horrible. And I always found that to be the case in a lot of lucid dreaming is that there was always still some kind of conscience or something there that was keeping me from being a jerk. I don't know. Well, I I think that's exactly right. And, you know, you have to ask the question about whether or not that circuit, whatever it is, is actually wisdom Mm -hmm. getting in the road to prevent some other part of you from leading you into a regrettable danger. Yeah, or like, or just committing any kind of crime and wondering if it, like, there would, like, I'm going to rob a bank, but I'm, but am I really awake or is this a dream? And it would be really stupid if I thought I was lucid dreaming, but it was actually reality. I've actually had that thought in a lucid dream where I go, like, wait a minute, this might not be a lucid dream. Don't be stupid. And then that would be my kind of that other like little uh, safety. That would go on and then I would just not rob the bank because generally when you first lucid dream, you think, you know, I'm going to commit all these crazy little crimes. I'm going to fly. I'm going to turn over cars, blah, blah, blah. But uh, all right. I think I've uh, I've I've exposed myself enough to my mental problems. I want to talk about Unity 2020. OK, sure. This is a really a phenomenal idea, especially since I uh, the uh, the ticket that you've come up with is kind of ingenious. But I want you to explain what Unity 2020 is, and then if you want to talk about the, the ticket that you decide, decided on and, and, and why, go for it. Sure. So uh, Unity 2020 is now a fairly substantial all-volunteer organization that was hatched after I unveiled a, an emergency proposal for recapturing the White House for the American people. Mm-hmm. and. Essentially, I just realized that I was very disturbed by both the major party Mm -hmm. offerings and that I thought it actually put the nation in danger. Mm -hmm. 
and that we needed a, another way. But I know from years of experience that if you propose something outside of the major parties, you are always told that you will elect the greater evil and right. therefore you mustn't consider it and especially not this election cycle. Mm -hmm. So to beat that argument, I came up with a proposal that does not spoil an election. And the proposal involves drafting two candidates, mm -hmm. one from the left and one from the right, drafting them under the agreement that once elected, they will govern as a team by consensus, except where that is impossible. The person at the head of the ticket will be chosen by coin flip. Mm -hmm. After four years, their positions will reverse and it goes on this way until somebody has inhabited the office of president twice and is no longer eligible, at which point somebody else could be swapped in and it could go on indefinitely. And this tends to do a couple things. One, because it appeals to people on both the left and the right. It does not clearly empower one side or the other. And we now know from our organization that this actually works, that we draw evenly from would-be Trump and would-be Biden supporters. Mm -hmm. Um, we also, quarter of our volunteers actually are people who weren't planning to vote at all. So we're very attractive to disaffected voters who are so fed up that they're no longer engaged in the process and, and our proposal brings them back. Um, and I guess the final thing you asked about the ticket. And mm -hmm. so we went through a process in which people nominated people for our draft. It turned out that the top six people were far enough away from the rest of the pack in terms of the number of times they were nominated that they constituted a, uh, a good short list, three from the left, three from the right, just as, uh, as it turned out. And we then ran a ranked choice vote for, we set up the nine possible tickets with three from the left and three from the right. And we had our membership go through a ranked choice vote, which worked beautifully. And the top ticket is Tulsi Gabbard and Dan Crenshaw. Yeah. The second one is Andrew Yang and Admiral William McRaven. All right. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. I remember the second one, which I wasn't that crazy about. But the first pair is I don't think you could do a better job of of selecting uh, two independent thinkers from different sides. Uh, obviously, they're both veterans. Uh, and Tulsi is just to me, uh, just you know, it, it's uh, I when I when I was when I look at her, and I even and I'll say this about Crenshaw too. I've talked to him a couple of times. Um, it, Penn Jillette said this one thing. He said that uh, he always like he's always interested in people who, when they give you two of their political or social opinions, you cannot pre you cannot predict the third one. And I think that you can say that about Tulsi. Like you, she could tell you what she believes in two things, but you still aren't really sure what she would if you did a third one. What she would believe in because she's, she's kind of she marches to the beat of her own drum. And Crenshaw obviously is is uh, an incredibly appealing uh, and and um, refreshing voice, and and especially when it came to how he uh, dealt with the cancel culture, refusing to cancel Pete Davidson over the uh, the joke and the joke that I think Crenshaw understood was that the joke was is a joke by virtue of being horrible and 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 so it's not it's, that's the whole point of it that it's a horrible joke but anyway so so you you have these you have these two people let's say you end up qualify I'm not sure how you qualify you you might be able to explain it to me what happens 
you draft them, and I mean, I, I'm pretty sure Tulsi would be all in, but would Crenshaw be all in? I don't know. But my point is, how do you how do you get to that point? Well, first of all, let me say, um, let's just take a moment to notice that a an institution or a, a, an organization composed of patriots who just simply volunteered for the job mm-hmm. was able to put together a process in which absolutely without our meddling with it, it produced a ticket this good. Yeah. And the ticket's even slightly better than mm-hmm. than you you are saying or maybe even know, because it turns out that Tulsi and Dan know each other and they're friends. So not only did it find a ticket that, uh, you know, checks all the boxes, but we know that these people get along well enough to actually do the work of finding a consensus. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I couldn't be more pleased at how well the process accomplished what we wanted it to at that level. Mm -hmm. From the point of view of the draft, Mm -hmm. what we need is a groundswell of support and I, I think this is maybe um, if there is a weakness of the proposal, it is this because people are still traumatized by the idea that they will be blamed for spoiling the election. Right. And so although privately we get lots and lots of support and enthusiasm and people telling us to keep going and make it happen publicly, they're not ready to say so. And that will ultimately require us by our own agreement to pull the plug on the plan if we can't get it to Mm-hmm. to catalyze. So um, this is something, it's it's a tragedy for the nation if we have to do that because we really do have something that's so superior to the major party offerings. I mean, just imagine, put yourself in the mindset of it being uh, January and Tulsi Gabbard and Dan Crenshaw are being sworn in under an agreement to govern together in the interest of the nation. I mean, how much better do you feel about our prospects in in that scenario than either one of the major party uh, candidates winning? You know, it's it it is a like I it's sixty days away, and and I I feel um, hopeless in the sense that unless. Biden wins big. And I'm not saying I'm, I'm pro Biden. I, I, I find the whole idea of him being the nominee atrocious, especially when they had the opportunity to they've had four years to figure this damn thing out. And they, and they give us a guy who is who is kind of literally on his last legs. But anyway, so what worries me is unless it's a landslide. We're going to have violence. And, and, and I guess what bugs me about my own thinking in this is that um, yeah, I, I, would, I wouldn't mind – there's a, there's a reason why I wouldn't um, – like Trump I could live with except I couldn't live with the violence that people are, seem to be hanging over the country's head if he does win. And that – I don't want to be thinking like that. I don't want to think that my vote – has to be a certain way or else there's going to be bloodshed. But there are there are forces that are making me think that way. Believe me, I I understand Trump's faults, but I also see th- he's done some things even this week that I the critical race theory thing. I mean, these are these things to me are not small. They're, they're like things. This is why an I a non ideologue is so interesting. And but I'm getting off track. I I I I, I think the genius of your idea is that people can vote for it. 
knowing that they're not going to benefit the person they like the least. That's the that's how this has this is what I think is so interesting about it is that you know if if you know I were to vote it's not like I'm going to help Biden because there's somebody over not voting who's going to vote for this that's not going to help Trump. Do you, do you see my point? I don't know. Oh, 100%. Yeah. 100%. Now I will say uh just so that the picture is complete. I'm expecting if the unity proposal um, does not catch fire as it needs to. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're condemned to choosing between Trump and Biden. I believe Trump is going to win uh, by a substantial margin. Mm-hmm. And that is going to result in a catastrophe predictable enough of one kind. But I think we've got a, protect, a catastrophe of another kind coming if Biden wins. So mm-hmm. w- what I want people to understand is that the very fact of voting for a president itself requires you to suspend your disbelief. We all know that your vote is infinitesimally likely to affect the outcome. Right. And yet we are depending on tens of millions of people to calculate that it is still worth doing. Mm-hmm. So we're already doing something that is hard to explain mm-hmm. in voting. Yeah. And explaining why you would vote for Tulsi Gabbard and Dan Crenshaw instead of Donald Trump or Joe Biden is the same kind of calculation, Mm -hmm. right? It's a little hard to defend, but in the end, it's obviously right. Mm -hmm. And if only people could say, you know what, what the heck? Um, The proposal is constructed not to elect the greater evil. This is a far better option than either of the major party offerings. So I'm going to do it. If people would do that and then talk to each other and say, you know, hey, you ought to join us. This could actually happen. Yeah. You know, what? You ha- I, I know it sounds so cliche to say this, but the person that needs to have you on is Rogan. But I know you've been on his show before, but it seems like that's that this if you if you want that kind of like what do you call it groundswell or the uh you know to come from below because it's not going to come from the from above it's not like the top networks are going to are, are going to grab this it's when you have somebody i'm surprised rogan hasn't ha, ha, i has he tapped you on this yet cuz i um, I, I don't know feels rogan like rogan and i uh you know um i i think it's fair to say that we're friends i certainly like joe i've been on his program five times. And in fact, I unveiled this plan before it was called Unity 2020. It was called the Dark Horse Duo plan. And um, I unveiled it on his program where he was enthusiastic about it. So yes, I agree. He is a um, a uniquely positioned and I think overwhelmingly trusted and liked um, leader. Mm-hmm. And that yes, his uh, his embrace of the proposal would put it in a whole different league. Yeah, and you get you get that uh, it's like a mimetic response. All these uh, everybody else falls in line. If he does it, uh, then other people do it, and and uh, uh, all of a sudden it's like then all of a sudden you have producers at networks going, "Hey, did you hear about this Unity Twenty Twenty thing?" That's how it works. Sadly, um, I want to ask you because I don't have much time left. I got to go put my makeup on my face. Um, <laughs> Okay, so you have you you've been you were the canary in the coal mine with what's been going on. I think uh, from Portland to Seattle, Olympia, you name it, uh, Wisconsin, 
starting with, you know, what happened to you. But so you're seeing this happening all over the country. I'm, I'm, when I'm saying happen, the, these protests, quote, 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 protests that are 93 percent peaceful, um, <laughs> which is it's like saying your life raft is 92 percent non-leaking. Uh, but uh, um, do you where do you see this going? Oh, I hesitate to tell you, Greg, because I, I think this is just an unmitigated disaster. And I, I will tell you, yes, I I do feel like the canary in the coal mine um, because this it looks so much like what happened at Evergreen. And I at this point, I'm forced to conclude that I went through it for nothing mm. because we're just repeating it at a scale that's. You know, I mean, it was predictable enough when I testified to Congress. I told them to expect this and some of them listened, some of them didn't. But yet here we are. So where is it going? Potentially, mm-hmm. we're headed towards some new version of civil war. Yeah. And I'm concerned that it might be headed our direction um, much faster than people imagine. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, if you're watching the resignations of even uh, black officers or black uh, heads of command over BLM and, and you're watching just the, the recruitment numbers down, it's it, there's a there's going to be a, a large, a wider gap of non-policing. And it, and that means you're going to see more of these demonstrations that are just unfettered. And and um, I don't know if you talked about this or if I, or if I was thinking about it. But I was thinking about RoboCop, and I'm thinking about how this is – I think it might have been you, but how – or maybe it was Scott Adams. I'm, I'm getting my podcast confused. But the, 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 the kind of the lurching towards privatization of security is going to be the it, – it's, that's what's going to happen, and only the rich are going to be able to afford it. And so the police, in a way, will become like the postal service in that only inner cities have will rely on the postal service where everybody else does DHL and FedEx and UPS – and this is this is how the model of law enforcement might end up being where you're in a gated community or you're in a town that has a really strong, well-paid private security where all the good police end up going for better pay. You're going to end up having these kind of this this public utility and this private and this incredibly successful, effective private thing. That seems to me where it might end up going in, in, in about five years. I don't know. What do you think? Well, yeah, that was me. Yeah. I, I can't. I don't know if uh, Scott Adams might have said it too, but yes, I think we're headed towards gated communities, mm-hmm. private security, and then for those who can't afford those two things, it's going to be warlordism, mm-hmm. the Wild West. It's going to be uh, an absolute tragedy, and this is also needless because, yeah. as flawed as the nation may be, it was a stunning success as a prototype. And the right thing to do is to fix what is still not quite right with it rather than to wreck it in this absurd, nonsensical overreaction. It's uh, the, whatever the the organization is doing, which I find interesting that we don't know the exact numbers. Like if if you could put a, if you could put a rough, if you could guess the jelly beans in that, in that, uh, the the jar at the counter of the diner, the, you know how many people are vandalizing and looting. Are we being held hostage by five thousand people, seven hundred people? I I mean, we no one's counting. Oh, it's amazing! And what they've done it, it's an incredible magic trick, really. They have pretended 
that they are speaking for <laughs> a vast majority and they've they've created this illusion by terrorizing people into being silent. Mm -hmm. And so by conflating their silence with support for this nonsense, they're absolutely deranging the process. And we're, you know, uninventing the police, even though if you ask people, irrespective of color, people don't think that's a good idea. Right, exactly. And what happens is the the smartphone can capture exactly what the acti the activist or the rioter wants captured, which is the police responding um, and 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 so then that creates uh, the second and third guessing of law enforcement um, because if, you're going to have to react with force at some point, and force is ugly. Pa you know, smacking somebody you know with a with a baton is going to be viral, and you might get you might get fired. So they're almost it's almost like they are handcuffed by the smartphone, and and uh, and every politician is frightened of losing their power over this, so they can't stand up. I mean. If you didn't care about your like whether you were going to be reelected, you would put your foot down and stop this. But, you know, the mayor of Portland just wanted to be liked, you know. And the irony is he's not going to end up being liked by anybody. Yeah. The the uh, the rioters hate him mm -hmm. and uh, all of the people who are depending on him to put an end to these riots are going to end up hating him for failing to do it. So it's it's a uh, it's a completely needless um, political catastrophe for him, but somehow he just can't see past his own rhetoric. Yeah, it's uh, it's mind-boggling. Let's end on an up note. Do you do you see a way out of this? <laughs> just lie if you have to. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I'm with you. So let's put it this way: in evolutionary theory, mm -hmm. use this metaphor, what's called the adaptive landscape, mm -hmm. and the idea of the adaptive landscape is that we are on a peak. And in order to get to a higher peak, a better state, we have to go through what we call an adaptive valley. And so things look very dark. Mm -hmm. Now, it could be that's because we're headed towards, you know, the dissolution of the country. Or it could be that that very darkness is the frightening pathway to something better, that mm -hmm. we will wake up in time and that we will do the right thing. And if we do that, it is possible that we could come out stronger than we are now. But wow, I hate to have to to risk it this way. It, mm -hmm. It's it's such a it's such a beautiful society and the aspiration is exactly right. And for us to uh to threaten it this way is is just mm. it's frightening. So um let let this be an adaptive valley and let's find the higher peak on the other side. I like that. I'm going to use I'm going to I'm going to use the clumsy analogy of like it's just like the Cold War before communism fell. It all looked really bad. I always thought that we were going to get nuked and then it didn't happen. That's how I'm going to look at it. <laughs> probably I love not, it. Probably not a good one. <laughs> well, let's hope let's hope that's a good analogy. Yes. Professor Weinstein, a pleasure talking to you. Um obvious stupid question, where can people find the Dark Horse podcast? When does it air? You've done like 45 of them. Yep. Um, they can find us on their favorite podcast app, or if they want to watch us, uh, they can find us on YouTube. And uh, they can also get announcements at uh, on Twitter, at Brett Weinstein, Brett has one T, or at Heather E. Hying, H-E-Y-I-N-G. Those are probably the best places. She's hilarious, by the way. Very dry sense of humor. 
I love her. Yeah, you guys do good. You guys are like the you're like the uh, George and Gracie of evolutionary biology. <laughs> I'll take it. I don't even know if anybody listening knows what I'm talking about because that's such an old reference. But uh, George Burns, Gracie Allen. All right, great. Thank you, Professor. Awesome. All right, thanks so much, Greg. Nice talking to you. Same here. Bye bye. 